disinformation harms Republican voters too. There's this idea that it it only benefits Republicans, but but it makes it impossible to have the debates that we need to have when they're not grounded in truth. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. One of the central things that I've been following in this podcast since 2017 is what is happening with progressive political entrepreneurship broadly, and especially in technology. So I was intrigued when Eric Wilson, who's a leading Republican political technologist, reached out to me to come on the show and share information from a relevant survey he had conducted about digital campaigning. Eric has been very active on his side of the aisle, working as digital strategist for Ed Gillespie, the former chair of the Republican Party, in his campaigns for Senate and Governor in Virginia, for the National Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee, for Marco Rubio's presidential primary campaign. He also founded Startup Caucus, an incubator that helps seed conservative political technology ventures. Eric works for Bullpen Strategy Group. He doesn't seem to be much of a Trump fan. Despite working for the wrong side, Eric was a very good guest, and we had a good and wide-ranging conversation about innovation, politics, disinformation, and many other timely things. You should definitely listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Eric Wilson of Startup Caucus. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm Eric Wilson. I'm a political technologist guiding conservatives through the digital transformation of politics. I do that through a few roles. First is uh, as the director of the Center for Campaign Innovation, which is a, a C4 looking at you know how the future of campaigns are being run. I'm also the managing partner of Startup Caucus, which is an investment fund and incubator for Republican campaign technology. And that's not all, is it? Yes. And then I also work with uh, Best Practice Digital, where I help uh, uh, Republican candidates with best practices in digital marketing. I um, work with a number of campaigns and organizations, and uh, I'm just doing my best to drag the Republican Party kicking and screaming into the future of, of politics. Is that a good thing? I enjoy it. I, I'm a glutton for punishment. I think we're making good progress. It's always just interesting to see how the, the grass is, is not always greener on the other side. Yeah. Where'd you grow up? Uh, I was born and raised in Wichita Falls, Texas, so so North Texas, and then got involved with an internship on Capitol Hill with a, a member of Congress uh, from North Texas and went off to college and caught the Washington bug and and have been in the, the D.C. area for almost 13 years now. 
Tell me about college for you. You you were a math major. I was a math major, so I uh, I did an early uh, high school program at the the University of North Texas, and I basically had a math major completed um, by the time I showed up at college. So I said, okay, if I can just do the remaining work for my major, I'll have lots of time for extracurricular activities and elective courses. So I took that route and 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 did things like history and theology and actually have never taken a political science course. How far into math did you get? I really enjoyed the, the discrete mathematics and cryptography side of things. So um, number theory, I never really could crack through uh, on the, the upper level calculus and, and, and physics kind of things. I just understand numbers and probabilities. <laughs> Fair enough. So it, it's actually math is not really helpful to me in the political industry because I can't read statistics or margins of errors or anything like that. Well, I'm sure you could if you put a little <laughs> practice into it. That's a valuable skill. Tell me about that transition out of college and into the workforce. Well, it was a it was a tough time. So I, I I was slated to graduate in the spring of 2007, which, as you know, we're heading into the global financial crisis, and and I had an early opportunity to leave school and and get started on the hill. And I took that and really glad I did because it just gave me a little bit of a leg up. And then Does that mean you didn't graduate? I, I did graduate. As I mentioned, I was I was just sort of loafing around taking elective courses. So um it was it was easy to to do. And then it was an interesting time because I was obviously working for Republican members on the Hill. We had just lost the the majority in two thousand six. The Republicans on the Hill were looking for new ways to to communicate with the American people from the minority. And here come Twitter and Facebook and what we called new media then. And and I, I saw an opportunity there and 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 went with it. And my career grew out of that. Why did you pick the Republican side? Was it your family Republican? What, like- no, no, no. My my dad is 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 very disappointed in me. He was a Vietnam protesting hippie. I'm a person of faith. That's very important to me. And really care fundamentally about the pro-life issue. And, and that really is the the focus for me. I understand people disagree with me and it's a passionate issue, but that's, that's really what um, centers me in the Republican party. And then obviously I'm a big believer in the, the economic policy, although I think there's room to, to make it more equitable for everyone, but it, it has mostly to do with my faith. Okay. Tell me about your path into political tech on the Republican side. Well, so I, you know, I had the opportunity in 2009 to go work with uh, Patrick Ruffini and Mindy Finn at Engage, which was one of the very early um, digital firms. Uh, and on, and on Patrick, you may have heard, uh, was on my show. I, I went to a class he taught at uh, Hopkins, and he's a, a very nice fellow. I like him a lot. He is, and, and he's a, a great person to work for. So I was one of their, you know, second or third employees, along with Gary Kobe, um, who then went on to run Trump Digital. So it's an interesting um, early early start. And so I got my start there, worked there for a couple of cycles, and then decided to go work with American Action Network and CLF and get some experience there. And then Ed Gillespie, uh, I really credit him with with convincing me that I need to go out on the campaign trail and and helped him in his 2014 campaign, which almost worked out for us. Tell me about that. I don't really know the organs on the right very well. What is American Action Network? What is CLF? 
So uh, Congressional Leadership Fund is uh, the, the House-aligned super PAC. I, I guess priorities would be the closest analog. Or, or House Majority, Majority PAC. PAC. Yeah. yeah. And then American Action Network is a, a C4 kind of action tank, you know, back when I guess Center for American Progress would be be another uh, analog. So really just kind of the the outside political allies for House Republicans. What did you learn working at those places? There are so many decisions being made on on Capitol Hill. You know, I was on the Hill and I thought that that was the center of the universe. And then I very quickly saw how much of a role that that campaigns and money play in the political process and and how critical it is for advancing an agenda. So I think that if, if I had to distill it down to, to one lesson, it would just it, it's what really opened my eyes that at least for where we are back then and, and certainly now that that the most important you know, battlefield in, in American politics is electoral politics and who actually controls power. Ed Gillespie, who you said you worked for, was chairman of the Republican Party. Tell me about him. What was it like to work for him? Yeah. So um, Ed's been a very good friend and mentor for a number of years. So, you know, he always liked to joke. He was, he was appointed RNC chairman by President George W. Bush. And then after that became chairman of the Republican Party of Virginia with um, Bob McDonnell. And so he joked that he was working his way down to precinct chair. You know, in 2014, he decided to to run for Senate in Virginia. It looked like a really unwinnable race because Mark Warner had tons of money. Uh, polling didn't look favorable, but it was, a, it was a wave year for us. We put together a really good campaign and he believed in the power of digital campaigning and, and, and that made a difference, especially when we didn't have um, the resources that we really should have and came close. I think it was about 17,000 votes just shy of, of, of winning that race. I've heard that if people hadn't believed the polling, which was so poor that he would have had the funding and probably would have won it. I, I think that's part of it. I actually prefer to blame myself a little bit more. I think if I knew then what I know now about online fundraising and how to run uh, digital campaigns, we would have had the resources we needed to put us across. I mean, uh, just candidly as as you know, self-reflection, we didn't raise enough money online that we should have. And that's with me, but a few things can be true. It's super hard in politics to sort out all of the causality, isn't it? It is. And, and one of the best books I read last year was The Radical Uncertainty, which just really you know, crystallized for me the idea that anyone who's trying to give you exactly one reason for a complex problem is not really taking the, the right view. And I don't think any one person deserves blame, but there were a lot of factors, you know, and on the other side of that, you could say, oh, well, if they had more money, then it would have been countered or, you know, so it's a, it's an interesting game to play or thought experiment, but it's um, ultimately counterfactual. <laughs> ultimately, you can't get anywhere. I guess you worked as Marco Rubio's digital director in the 2016 primary season. That must have been a heck of an interesting place to be. What was it like? It was. I, you know, I was really excited to be on a presidential campaign. I thought we had a, a really good candidate and, and had a great shot. And then down came Donald Trump from the Golden Escalator in August of that year. And it completely changed the, the nature of the primary. I think it completely changed the nature of politics. We were really focused on, on running a, a professional campaign and talking about serious issues. And that's not where our electorate was. The one thing that does stick out to me very early on is the disinformation piece. We didn't realize what it was then, 
but you would see these kind of uh, websites or fake accounts or fake Facebook pages pop up. And like, I, you know, I'm a, I want to dig down and see where, who's behind that. You know, how can we, we fight back through sort of the press, but you just couldn't get anywhere because it turns out it was foreign agents. And, and so that made it very difficult. I think, you know, they said after the fact that, you know, Senator Rubio's campaign was a top target for foreign disinformation in the Republican primary. Again, like I always tell people, I learn more from the races you you lose than than the ones that you win. Are you talking about Russian disinformation or was it broader than that? Russian d- disinformation. Always have to be careful about, you know, who do you, I, I can't say with certainty that, oh, this was GRU um, or, or one of the other hacker enclaves. But yeah, I mean, it was pretty clearly um, Russian disinformation attempts. And it was used to spread disinformation about our candidate. It was used to, you know, sort of stoke parts of the base. And we, you know, just really saw it in real time and and weren't sure how to deal with it. I'll just give you one example. In the run up to the Iowa caucuses, there was a, you know, video of Senator Rubio walking through uh, a hotel lobby. And, and one of Senator Cruz's staff was reading the Bible. And, and it was hard to hear what Senator Rubio said, but some troll on the internet, I'm sure it was from Russia, changed the subtitles. So again, like if you're just scrolling through your Twitter feed, it seems like he said something unsavory about the Bible. We didn't realize it at the time, but it was, it was an extra opponent in the race that we were fighting. Do you think it made a difference? Absolutely. It shifted the tone and tenor of debate. It also shifted topics. Just as we were talking, not going to ascribe any one one action or one cause to a a really complicated system like that. How did the whole, I don't know, little Marco, the nicknaming and the, the way that Trump campaigned against your candidate, how did that feel? Well, you know, on a personal level, it's it's really frustrating because you you expect that there are just certain boundaries and, and limits in in political discourse, and and those didn't apply, of course. And then at the same time, we were running a objectively a, a more professional campaign. It was very frustrating that every single Trump rally got wall to wall coverage from cable news, and and we would really fight for maybe like five minutes of time for, for one of Senator Rubio's stump speeches. And it was pretty disheartening to see, regardless of the candidates, you know, running earnest campaigns only to be uh, upended by someone who was, was running what we now know is a completely different style of politics. Well, he got sort of a giant in-kind donation from a lot of media, didn't he? I mean, it was upwards of $2 billion if you pull it all together. Um, and, and how do you compete with that? I guess if people are buying what he's selling, which many people did, it's impossible. What do you think about what he's selling? Like as a Republican, as a digital director for a competing campaign, I mean, what we saw was a lot of Republican politicians say rather savage things about Trump in the primary including yours, uh, including Graham, you know, uh, Cruz, and have to kind of form ranks and not take him on after he got the nomination or after he got the presidency. How do you see Trump from your perspective and having watched your leaders behave that way? I have to get this in at the, the top here. Kamala Harris didn't have favorable things to say about 
uh, Joe Biden. Part of that's just what happens in a, in a primary. You know, you have to draw contrast. But I, I will say that there was an element of the base, and, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot, and obviously, you know, with my my role on campaigns, I interact with closely with 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 our volunteers and things like that. And, and people are scared about, you know, shifts in economics, shifts in culture. Um, I don't want to make excuse for any of the atrocious behavior or um, white supremacist leanings that are, are infecting some quarters of the party. Politicians are ultimately going where their voters are pushing them. And, and so I think that gets overlooked too often. In fact, their very survival is often at stake as politicians. Right. Yeah. Just generally for you politically, has the Trump four or five years been a tricky time for you or has it been easy to navigate? Well, yeah. I mean, I guess the fact that I have a hard time giving you a straight answer on it indicates that it's been tricky. I, uh, worked on a, a campaign in 2017. There was, there was no secret that, you know, was not a fan of, of, of president Trump. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I agree with a lot of his policies as do many members of our party. And it was just sort of this constant exercise and, and separating personalities from policies. And for me trying to figure out like, well, what is the role of a, a candidate in politics and, and what is my individual role within, within campaigns? I, I really do stand behind the, that I think the, the more we use technology, the closer we get to voters, the more responsive we become, the better the process is for everybody. Um, so I, I guess I'm still idealistic in, in that regard. You went over to the National Republican Senatorial Campaign after I, the Rubio? I did. I finished out the, the 2016 campaign there. How was that? It was good. I obviously, again, really tough time. You know, how do you, how do you run alongside Donald Trump? It was a it was a good year for our our Senate candidates. Um, I think there were in many cases what what I would call reverse coattails of really good Senate candidates like Senator Rubio, like uh, Rob Portman, like Ron Johnson, getting Donald Trump across the line or Pat Toomey in there, getting across the line in key battleground states that that he they weren't running in this year and and he didn't win. Did they run ahead of him in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania? J- just barely. Yeah. So maybe they pulled each other across. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Again, hard to isolate all of the variables. Yeah. I mean, when you're talking to people in the NRSC during that Trump run, which I'm gathering, I'm guessing would go similar to national feelings that like, hey, probably this guy's not going to win. And then maybe some surprise that he did. What did you observe among your your colleagues in their reactions before and after. I think you're right. Most people did not expect him to to be successful because he wasn't running a traditional campaign, right? So anything that you could criticize about how to run a campaign, they did it. And uh, I, I think people are sort of expecting, look, we're you know we're going to do this, we're going to see that it didn't work, and and try to get back on on the path that was sort of you know laid out by sort of a newer generation of, of candidate that we were, were seeing. It's always tough. I, I, you know, I will say, uh, especially with, you know, people who are just starting out their careers, you know, how do you navigate that presidential campaigns only come around every four years? Um, it's such a 
big opportunity professionally. You know, this is, I, I find myself in a tough spot sometimes because, you, you know, yes, you want to look at it from the, the macro perspective of what this means for politics, you know, in the abstract, but I really am uh, just, I'm passionate about the, the conduct of politics, the business of politics and, and, and how we, we do that. And so I kind of have to separate my, my brain in, in a few times, but I think by and large people were, um, were skeptical of, of Trump's chances and were, were as shocked as anyone that he won. Were they celebratory? I can't speak for, for, you know, any specific people. So I want to be clear about that, but I, I think there was, there was shock. I don't know if it was if it was celebratory. I think, you know, when when the dust settled, you realize, okay, well, we're going to be able to get some agenda items through, particularly, you know, judges. But what what is the long term cost, right? Um, I think that was that was that was what people were trying to to reckon. When you think backwards to the Trump twenty sixteen campaign on the digital front, I mean, they started to get a lot of credit after about. What they had done on Facebook, there was a lot of controversy around the data that was obtained by the various groups that were that were working for him online. Do you think that that campaign was more successful online than you thought, say, when you were working for Rubio? Absolutely. They ran a better digital campaign than we did um, because Donald Trump understands his role as an entertainer. And most voters are consuming politics as entertainment. I don't say that to diminish the very important issues that are going on, but but that's how they they consume it. President Trump played right into that in, in ways that other candidates were unwilling or unable to do. So they really were rewarded by algorithmic filtering and um, cheaper ad rates for for being able to do those things. So they ran a better digital campaign. I think the Cambridge Analytica scandal is a, a big red herring. As we have learned in the intervening years, that company was a complete scam. And really, the, the the Trump campaign just used Facebook's tools really, really well and used them better than than the Clinton campaign. They used embedded Facebook people, right? I mean, they because maybe they didn't think they had the expertise, they took advantage of the companies, the platform's expertise. Exactly. And and because you come into this as a political outsider, you don't have those preconceived uh, notions or biases of, you know, I've got to use this firm or this person. And they were very skeptical of all the people who had run the losing campaigns. Um, and so it was a, a really um, interesting laboratory to see, you know, what would this like completely digital campaign be like? Do you have an opinion about uh, Parscale and his role and then his you know, the various work he did in 2020? I don't know Brad personally. Uh, obviously, you know, I, I think ed, anyone who's in this industry has to acknowledge what he put together in 2016 as, as nothing short of, uh, of miraculous and, and successful. The free attention and the controversy on it on its own wasn't enough to get Donald Trump across the finish line. You know, the the, the digital team and listening to the right people was what Brad was instrumental in. And I would even be even more defensive of of some of his dis, his spending decisions early on in the campaign because he had the ambitious of goal of wanting to have contact information for every Trump voter in the country, and and I think that's fundamentally where campaigns have to be able to go this one to one relationship, and he articulated that. It's clear that that 
didn't get to be seen to fruition, didn't work out as well as they had hoped. But I've always found it, it very murky to to figure out what uh, when things are being litigated in the press like that. And and I don't know people. I try to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. What did you do before picking up with Gillespie for governor? That's pretty much the next thing you did. Yeah, I, I, I got married. <laughs> That's what I did. Yeah. Congrats on that. Yeah, I, I got married and then went right into a campaign. Then you knew the candidate quite well. You'd worked for him before. There was a lot going on on our side in that 2017 race in Virginia. Boy, was there. We were, we were mad. We were working really hard to to turn around the politics. There was an enormous amount of innovation in organization and in political technology on our side. You were on the other side. What did you see and what did you do? I was just astonished and and really jealous, quite frankly, of all the, the technology and the tools that were being deployed for the down-ballot races uh, in 2017. I think Quite honestly, Governor Northam's campaign got a huge boost from from the tools that the grassroots and the resistance had uh, to be able to organize. Like I, I to this day, in most of my talks, I talk about the liberal women of Chesterfield County who used Mobilize and other tools to organize for the first time Democrat precinct workers in every precinct uh, in Chesterfield County. We were the first Republicans to lose that in fifty years. Not a distinction we were going for, but that was all equipped by by grassroots having really good tools, and then of course the huge advantage of Act Blue um, for for down ballot campaigns with online fundraising, and then add on to that a very unfavorable political climate for Republicans broadly. And uh, I mean, it was it was just sort of a master class in in how coordinated campaigning works uh, from the Democrats. What did you try to do from your side, given all that? Well, we really focused on, um, you know, list building. We knew that online fundraising was going to be, uh, you know, not necessarily like a, because of the way finance works in Virginia, wasn't going to be a huge money driver, but that's how you were going to get voters to have skin in the game. We wanted to, um, you know, make sure that we were able to push back on on attacks, both from the right and the left. Again, 2017, we're still fighting a lot of disinfo. There were there were several Facebook policies that that got changed between our race and the 2018 midterms that I, I hope we influenced, and we were really just focused on building a, a, a grassroots campaign that was going to keep its head down from kind of the, all the noise at the national level. We we just didn't have the technology and the tools that the the left did, so we were really still relying on you know paid media. Um, social media uh, never really got quite to that stage of of building kind of grassroots activists who could go out and take take action on their own and 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 that was just really difficult for us to overcome. I don't know much at all about it, but my sense is that there was a, a centralized data and tools uh, out of more than one place on the Republican side that you would have had been able to take advantage of in terms of data trust and things like that. What are you able to do? What information is available? What campaigning tools do Republicans have? Because you know, we understood it to be many millions, over $100 million investment in that. I don't know what the truth is. Right. And, and, and I will say that, and I think 
many on the left would also agree that our our, our data infrastructure is is second to none. Uh, I know that there's some really significant efforts to to catch up on the left, and we're we're keeping an eye on that. But that was the one thing out of 2012 where where Republicans said, "Look, we're not going to get beat again on on data." And the most important mechanism there is data trust, which allows different organizations to sort of all contribute to a, a, a voter file. And then you build tools and apps on, on top of that to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Without getting into too many boring details, but because of Virginia's campaign finance laws, which are basically non-existent, you don't need any of that coordination. You know, we had access to, to really good uh, data files. Um, you know, we had the, the standard walk apps. Are the walk apps separate? They are. So, so I think the, the best way I'd describe it for listeners is, you know, data trust is the plumbing and the providers that have their own walk apps. There are three or four that are approved by the party are, are like the faucets that you connect. Um, so it's all the same data. It's all going back the same way too. It's just different skins and bells and whistles. Republican campaigns and Democrat campaigns are like Darwin's finches. We evolved on different islands to solve different problems. I'm frequently jealous of the fact that, you know, you can pick up any organizer on the left and put them on a different campaign and they've got the same tools. With each Republican campaign, we have to rebuild our tech stack from the ground up. I mean, it is not a given that we're going to use this walk app, not a given that we'll use this website builder this volunteer management form. One thing we were a little late to on the um, Gillespie campaign tech-wise was peer-to-peer texting. The Dems in Virginia made a huge push there, particularly with college students, and really used text messaging. Um, Vote With Me and Outvote were two really uh, critical apps there for for their turnout. We just didn't have that, that diversity of tools to let the um, grassroots sort of own the campaign. Republican campaigns are always run very top-down. It's a command and control structure. What is Learn, Test, Optimize? So Learn, Test, Optimize is my newsletter. I uh, I did that the first Friday after um, Senator Rubio dropped out of the presidential race. I wanted to stay in, in touch with folks. And so every week I send out a newsletter that just includes the best, most relevant reads from the world of technology and politics. And it's grown pretty big. I've got 2,000 subscribers all around the world. And uh, that's now a project of the Center for Campaign Innovation, uh, which is the the C4 that I mentioned uh, at the top, where we're just doing lots of really interesting research into how voters interact with campaigns uh, online and consume media and use technology. You went to America Rising uh, for quite a while, chief digital officer. What is America Rising and what were you doing? So America Rising is the uh, premier uh, opposition research firm for Republicans. Our mission is to hold Democrats accountable. My role at the organization is was to help them f- how to communicate using you know owned audiences. Really, again, just the nuts and bolts of building an, a successful digital organization. You know, growing social audiences how to use um, list building tactics, that kind of thing. So it was a great experience and, and, and a really good organization, I think, think important organization, particularly when it comes to making sure that factual information is injected. You know, a lot of people don't sort of think that opposition research is an honest job, but I mean, it's all open source information. It's public records. Um, you know, for, for techies, it's 
OSINT. And um, that's, that's really what it is. And I think it plays an important role, especially in an era when, when facts can just be made up and, and spread widely. So you first came to my attention when I saw an article quite a while ago about Startup Caucus. I'm assuming that was somewhat of a reaction to what you saw with Higher Ground Labs in some of the tech that they funded into the Virginia race that you were working on. But tell me about the what is Startup Caucus and why did you go about building that and how's it doing? You're exactly right in terms of the inspiration. I saw, I, I was, you know, I was doing my autopsy of the campaign and I, I saw that there were these tools that were brand new right after 2016 that were, were being used to, to pretty um, good effect. And then I dig a, dig a little bit deeper and I find out that Higher Ground Labs is, is really leading this charge. And so didn't see a similar setup on our side and, and recognizing that, again, this is where things are going. So let's, let's anticipate it. Um, Startup Caucus, again, different approach because, you know, the Republicans controlled the White House, the Senate. And so there's less urgency, right, to figure out, like, how do we scramble back to power that, that you would have with, um, you know, in the case of Higher Ground Labs coming after 2016. I'm a big believer in the lean startup methodology. So I, I just started small and started recruiting folks that that agreed with with my mission. And, you know, we were able to invest $150,000 in six companies uh, for the 2020 cycle and looking to recruit more. I uh, am a big believer in um, bringing good tools um, to campaigns. And, and, and I'm especially interested in down ballot campaigns where um, you're, you're not as able to to sort of spend your way out of problems and you need additional leverage. And, and that's, of course, what technology and software is, is good at, is, is building leverage. I came off of the 2017 campaign and I, I thought to myself, you know, I, this is the, the second or third organization that I've helped build a digital campaign from scratch. And then it just goes away. There's no compounding interest, essentially. And so that's why I really shifted my focus to, to ecosystem-wide movement-wide solutions, and, and Startup Caucus is an important part of that. Where'd you find the money? Uh, I uh, just scraped it together from, from you know, professional allies. Um, we uh, weren't as fortunate as, as Higher Ground Labs in having uh, big money backers, although I'm, I'm hopeful that will change. You know, I think there were, there were a lot of just professionals who said, you know, we've we've got to have better tools, and and this will make the the uh, campaigns we work with better and and more effective, and and, and they stepped forward and and helped us out. I looked uh, at the website at the six companies you funded or funded, you know, gave them some seed money. Tell me about them. Yeah, so um, we're actually uh, five companies now because one of our companies, Pundit Analytics, was acquired, which is always good news um, when you're in this business. Who uh, bought them? Uh, Bullpen Strategy Group. Which you work for. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah, that's always an interesting thing um, when when you're wearing all those different hats, but but it comes with the territory. And um, so we, we have Numenar, which is artificial intelligence powered um, data and analytics. Um, they're doing really amazing work. I'm really proud of those those folks. The thing that's that's most um, revolutionary about what they're doing is they're they're bringing really sophisticated data modeling voter 
um, models to campaigns of any size, right? So rather than, you know, paying to get your model refreshed every six to eight weeks at a cost of $25,000, they're using AI to do it overnight. Swipe Red, another company I'm really excited about, um, is a product from Buzz360. It's the first Republican take on relational organizing, uh, which again, I'm just a huge believer in, in the science behind relational organizing. I think the left has beaten us there, and I don't want us to get too far behind. We also have uh, Voter Science, which is a, a really interesting open source project that builds sort of interchangeable campaign tools, specifically for really small campaigns in states that are neglected by the the national party. They're just not priorities on the map. And then um, Voterfied, which um, uses um, technology to verify that people who are filling out petitions are in fact uh, voters in in the districts that they're filling it out. And then Trailmapper, which is doing great work to help campaigns manage the the workflows that that come up time and again and, and making it just easier for candidates to to run, whether it's their first time or their second time. Looking at those six, and then I assume probably looking at others that you didn't fund, what do you think were the characteristics of good tech startups on the Republican side? I, I think it comes down to two things, uh, team and problem. So if if you have a, um, a problem that you are trying to solve that real people have, they're eager to find you. When you try and introduce a problem alongside with your product, that's when you are, are trying to do two jobs at once, and that's just really difficult. Uh, and then the second is the team. And, you know, it, it really takes a good blend of technical skill and entrepreneurial talent. And sometimes that can be found in one founder, um, but most often it's it's in in a pair of founders. And um, particularly in the political industry where it's all network driven, you've got to have someone who who understands how the unofficial org chart works and and how to build those those relationships and play the small p politics of of national politics to what degree did you guys look at our side and learn from us in doing this i've asked that question of so many progressive democratic entrepreneurs they're almost blind to what's happening on the other side except maybe a little bit that they glean that might not even be quite accurate. Yeah. So I, I really like using what's being done on the left as a kind of a boogeyman, you know, to, to get people to, to go towards action, uh, have success with that. Sometimes, sometimes I don't, I study it very carefully. Um, it's one of the reasons why I listen to your podcast so regularly. I mean, I may have to take it down. <laughs> I, I, well, I mean, or, or charge me 20 bucks a month for it or something. I don't yeah. know. Um, yeah. I feel like I, I should be giving back, but I, you know, here's, here's what I tell people, it, you know, I probably have more in common with professionally with folks who are on the left or trying to innovate campaigns and bring new technology. Um, than I do with, you know, high level Republican decision makers, because, you know, we're fighting the same battles. We're trying to get time, attention, money, investment into these new ways of doing things. The grass is not completely green on the Republican side. And I know it's not completely green on the, the, the Democrat and left side. I study it very closely, but again, we are trying to solve different problems. One of the most fundamental uh, ones is that Republican campaigns are very top-down command and control style. Whereas Democrat 
We say democratic, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Democrats run more of a, um, uh, you know, an organizer model where you're building a coalition and you've got a bunch of different groups and you're trying to bring them all together and coordinate that campaign. And, and that's where there's kind of like the diversity of, of technology. It seems like the 2020 cycle for you for Startup Caucus was probably sort of your minimum viable product. Absolutely. And so I'm assuming that the goal is to, I don't know, vastly expand that in the next cycle. Is that true? And how are you going about that? And how's it going? Yeah, that that's the goal. Um, you know, one of the the big things we did is was try and, and perfect our model, figure out where there were weaknesses before we we go and seek more resources. Um, really excited about some of the folks that we're talking to um, for our next round, um, but also just you know really good growth um, with our existing companies. I think there's much more appetite on on our side now for investing in technology and trying to figure out how do we how do we get back in power, uh, how do we make sure that we we are um, are reaching voters. There is a lot of fear right now with with what big tech companies are doing, just generally to politics. And then, of course, there's there's always the the concern about you know censorship, which I, I really don't find a a very compelling or interesting thing to quibble about. I am very concerned with the capriciousness of companies like Facebook just completely turning off Facebook ads because they want to, and it causes problems for for my side and your side. It does. Is Startup Caucus a for-profit enterprise? Does it take a piece in the companies it invests in? What's the model? We are for-profit. Ideally, the reason I, I did it that way is I, I want to be able to create a sustainable organization. I, I'm not comfortable with the the idea of just sort of asking for support um, time and time and again without really you know doing anything new. So I wanted to make sure that we had a, incentives aligned with our companies, but also were able to to be able to you know build a sustainable organization, which would set us apart from a lot of different groups in the political ecosystem broadly. That said, um, you know, there, there are other uh, industries and market segments that are better for angel investing and tech startups than, than politics. So it is going to take a little bit of cause-oriented support. You take a piece of the companies you invest in? We do, yes. You mentioned the market. Do you think it's a viable market to get some companies that do well enough that can be sold for enough to make a multiple on your investment, et cetera? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think so. I, but what I always tell people is you've got to calibrate your expectations because this is not, this is not unicorn land. Uh, you know, just the, the market is so small. We use a lot of the terminology of venture capital, but it's probably closer to private equity. I think there's nothing wrong with building a really good business that supports um, a team and and helps you make an income. So, uh, you know, yes, I borrow that language, but but I, again, I ask people to calibrate their expectations because you just look at it like what where are the the exit strategies and and you know this well, but there are only so many bigger fish um, for for mergers and acquisitions, and and it's very very unlikely that going public is is an option. But we've also seen in several cases that. You know, you make um, a really good impact in a political marketplace, and then you start to expand to to other areas as well. I, I just always go to Optimizely as probably like the best example of that. I mean, those guys started out on the Obama campaign in 08, and, and now they've got this really great company. 
Yeah. How do you select who you make your investments in? Uh, it's a lot of just one-on-one uh, outreach initially, but now that we have been public for a couple of years and and I do uh, my best to to share thoughts and I, I'm a real be- big believer in like building in public, you know, I, it's all in the execution. There, there's no secret sauce here. Um, so I, I share a lot of thoughts and ideas and that helps attract people and, and through referrals. So that's actually um, been, been really good. And, and now people mostly reach out to us um, for, for help and assistance. And then we, we go out and, and search people as well. You say we, is it you, you have a team? What is Startup Caucus in terms of staff? Well, there's no full-time staff. You know, it's um, primarily a, um, a volunteer endeavor on my part because I'm a big believer in in this, this solution and um, have a really great group of advisors and mentors and investors that we rely on. You know, we run to your point, this is an MVP. We run a lot leaner than a lot of other organizations because we wanted to figure out and and perfect, and and we're we're on our way to doing that. You know, it's interesting to me. I think there, there's a lot of pressure to to sort of um, have these big splashy numbers and and things like that. But I I'd rather people measure startup caucus by our impact and our ROI. Who do you have as advisors? We're getting ready to refresh, you know, because you, you've got to do that kind of every two years, but depending on where people work and, and jobs and things like that. But it's a it's a large mix of, of campaign professionals, but also folks who work in this the industry and and understand kind of the customer side of things. One area that we're we're looking to provide more support to our our portfolio uh, in is just sort of training. And and I, I didn't have as good appreciation for just how important sales, for example, is in this industry. And, and I always thought, you know, you just talk to enough people and you get your product sold, but, but there's, you know, we need support with, with sales and marketing and building pipelines. So yeah, that it's all the, uh, the very uninteresting nuts and bolts of running a company. I find some of that stuff pretty interesting. What's your goal as far as scaling for 2022 and beyond? Our goal is, you know, the campaigns that we help. So both with our current companies and, and future companies. So would like to see us helping more um, congressional campaigns. I think probably our companies helped about a dozen um, this last cycle. Um, would would like to see us work on on Senate campaigns. So starting to kind of grow um, in terms of the the size of campaigns we're working on, but also the quantity want to be able to invest more money in those companies because the $25,000 we were able to do was helpful. But as you know, in a cyclical business like this, where where you've got on years and off years, you need more runway um, to be successful. And then just being able to provide more professional services, um, you know, tangible results as an incubator is important to us as well. But I think we've proved out a lot of that and, and really hopeful that our donor community is going to step up and 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 fund that. What's your competition for Startup Caucus? If you're a political entrepreneur on the right, who else might you go to for funding? Well, our our competition is complacency. That that's really what we're fighting. There is a, a huge inertia to do things the way they've always been done. You know, you don't get criticized if you ran the same campaign you did last time. You just say it was bad luck. And the reason we created Startup Caucus is there is no other entry point for 
uh, an entrepreneur to come into this marketplace and say, hey, I have a really good idea. I know how to build technology or software and create products that will solve problems for campaigns. You know, I like to describe us as kind of the, the welcome mat for innovators and entrepreneurs and technologists to come into the the conservative movement and and really help make sure that campaigns are run more effectively. So if you had a bunch more money, would you already have a bunch more organizations to put it into? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, I've got I've got more ideas than I do dollars. Any entrepreneur or creative person is always in that space. And and we're fortunate that there are just a ton of people who are still eager to come into this space and and they need um, help just being guided, right? Like our, our role is more Sherpa and say, hey, don't don't step there. Be careful about that. This is going to be your biggest hurdle, things like that. And so we've got lots of folks who are, are eager. And I, you know, the thing that I am, am really wanting to, to invest in are all the people who have been on these campaigns for the last several years and they know where all the things are going wrong and they've got great ideas for products. Um, but maybe they just need the the extra support or help to sort of step out on their own and build their solution. What's Bullpen Strategy Group? So Bullpen Strategy Group is a, a research and public relations firm. Um, it's uh, how I pay my bills, which is, you know, working with, with different clients um, on digital strategy. I primarily focus on on how to build the most effective um, digital organization that you can. So less of the day-to-day execution and more of the the long-term higher level strategy. You enjoying that? I do. Um, it, it gives me the the flexibility to work with a lot of, of really interesting folks in the the advocacy side of, of things. I see tons of inefficiencies in in how um, big companies engage with official Washington. I think the clock is running out on being able to um, get away with with spending lots of money on things that don't present results. You know, I just think about like the metro ads for naval ships. Uh, always thinking about how can we do this more effectively? How can we use the, the, the immense data that's available in the legislative process to, you know, help um, decision makers, um, help advocates, things like that. Again, it's such a huge problem to put your arms around, but really interesting one. When you reached out to me, you were interested in talking about a survey you did through Center <laughs> through Center for Campaign in- Innovation. Which is is that also just you, or is that uh, more of an entity than? That. that that's that's more of an entity um you know we've got we've got funders and have folks that we work with again i'm 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 a cheapskate so i try and run most of these organizations pretty lean and put as many of our resources downfield as we can um but yeah we we did this really great first of its kind national poll that looked just at how do voters interact with technology consume media and and how do campaigns interact with them and you know it's the kind of data that I really wish I had 10 years ago when people were telling me that, you know, social media was a waste of time, um, that online fundraising was a joke, you know, all these sorts of things that people said to criticize um, digital campaigning. And now we, of course, live in an era when when digital campaigning is campaigning. Tell me about the survey and what are the key things that you learned from doing it? The key findings, again, this seems really simple, but it's an important thing, is that um, 52% of, of, of voters surveyed 
reported taking action online to learn more about a candidate or an election that shows without a doubt it should put to bed any sort of debate about how important online outreach, using technology, using the internet to campaign. We identified several areas that I I think are pretty shocking. Um, You know, the 57% of persuadable voters, so these were voters who reported being willing to vote for both Trump and Biden at some point, 57% of them turned to Google um, to get information about elections, candidates, policies, that sort of thing. I hear all the time that, oh, there are no persuadable voters. It's just base turnout, that kind of thing. But there's a very clear battleground in search engine optimization um, for persuadable voters that that we've put some data behind. Another big thing that jumped out at me is, yes, we know that there are are huge um, differences in how young people and old people consume media and use social media, use different tech platforms. But we're not seeing that difference reflected in how campaigns reach out to them. So, you know, campaigns basically treat a voter, whether you're 25 or 75, all the same. You're going to get door knocks. You're going to get phone calls. You're going to get texts. You're going to get online ads. You're going to get TV ads. There's no no real effort to kind of customize it based on demographics. And I think that was pretty shocking to me. Another thing that you have done of late that I noticed was you spent a little time somehow connected to Harvard and the Ash Center talking about disinformation and other topics. What'd you do there? What do you learn there? How is that? Yeah. So um, through a great opportunity, um, I think I I was the the token Republican uh, for the Harvard Ash Center uh, for Tech and Democracy Fellowship. Um, actually got to meet a, a number of, of the folks that you've had on the podcast in person, which was was great. Yeah, cool. Um, Stephanie Valencia, um, uh, Shomik Dutta from Higher Ground Labs, a um, number of other folks who are working for some, some really interesting organizations. I, I don't think a lot of people appreciate that, that, that disinformation harms Republican voters too. There's this idea that it, it only benefits Republicans, but, but it makes it impossible to have the debates that we need to have when they're not grounded in truth. So what I did is essentially an academic literature review of what what have scholars found over the last several years really digging into this disinfo piece. And what I came up with was a a framework for um, how to take individual steps to protect yourself from disinformation. So most of the, the work in disinfo is on, you know, platform policies, what are the technical solutions? How do you teach um, the media to cover this appropriately? But there are some some techniques that I would liken towards hand washing, where like I don't need to know the mutation of every single E. coli um, bacteria, but I do know that when I touch raw chicken, I wash my hands. So for disinfo, that includes you know being conscious about um, you know the sources that you're you're consuming. So um, you know, that idea of reading the, the label and, and knowing what you're consuming, cutting back on the stuff that's bad for you. So, you know, Facebook and Twitter, okay in small doses if you must, but, but don't let that be your primary source of information. There's a, another technique known as um, active open-minded thinking, which is essential to, to sort of understanding, you know, 
assessing claims and and um, evaluating evidence. Um, so those are the things that um, I, I've been working on, and there's a, a paper forthcoming uh, that'll be published from from Ash on that. But it was a really fascinating experience in getting to just sort of sit with some academic literature that I don't normally get to do. I bet it was the recent uh, some call insurrection that got into the U.S. Capitol. I'd, I'd call it that. I'd, I won't quibble with you on that. It was fueled by a combination of conspiracy theories and misinformation coming from the president and uh, other Republicans. You know, it, it isn't one thing. It's it's also the coming from the bottom up, I think, as well. And I think we'll know a lot more as it gets investigated. But I wonder what your lens is on that as a political technologist and a person interested in, you know, how, how information moves around. What did you see happening? We saw from the the very earliest days that this was going to be a problem. I mean, this was a this was a red letter day on the calendar for like the fringe elements uh, of the right wing and. And I'm just surprised that the response wasn't better organized, both in terms of, you know, policing it on the the platforms and the the just sort of law enforcement response. I I think um, several lawmakers also learned a very important lesson in 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 sort of appeasing these groups. And and if you indulge fantasy, it has consequences. So, I mean, that that whole day was just completely disheartening and. Um, I'm, I'm really glad we were able to have inauguration on the west front of the Capitol. Me too. I feel a lot better. And I was also very happy when they were able to push through the voting on the Electoral College on the same day or into the night to enact democracy in the face of people trying to delay it is really important. I think the really important distinction that we have to call out here, and I don't like to sound like a politician, but there's a huge difference in, in following legitimate methods of political discourse and disagreement versus violence and marauding the capital right i mean that 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 is just so beyond the pale of anything that 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 we allow there's also a big difference between campaigning on differences and some amount of spinning your own position and utter lying and misinformation and concocting of of things that are just fundamentally not true. I I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like a very trying four years for the country and a very trying post-election period, pretty rough for our side and your side. When you look forward, what can we do as a country to do better, especially in this nexus of politics and technology? Not to be too self-congratulatory, but I think the the conversations like we have now, I mean, we have disagreements. We're going to disagree, um, but we we ultimately are, you know, I think both passionate about the same system, a, about politics and, and using this as a mechanism for getting through our, our disagreements. What I try and do, and I would ask for, for folks on every side to do is to just think of folks as we're, we're people, right? Like, like um, assume that I uh, am acting in good faith, that I'm doing the best that I can, that I I'm doing what I think is right. Now, not everyone is going to, to be there. Um, and, and 
not everyone's going to be acting in good faith, but I really think that if if folks um, operate as that de- the default of assume the best in people, uh, that that is a really good starting point where you're not just start at a zero instead of starting at a nine. I try to do that. It's harder for me with with some of your competitors for the nomination, like Cruz, who went so much along with this Trump attempt to undo a fairly fought election result. Do you feel that same perspective or do you forgive them more because of where you're, where you are? You know, there's a tough thing with, uh, and I think some of this is our our own consequence that the, the quality of candidates and elected official that we're getting, I think is partially just the result of how nasty our politics have gotten. Um, so, so in order to be successful in these electoral contests, you've got to be willing to say and do things that might have been otherwise bounded in an earlier period of time. Um, but that, and that's that's one of the things that we uh, you see clearly in in academic literature is that the 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 frame of debate has been completely blown out by online. Um, media and algorithmic um, social media feeds, right? There's no left or center. It's just all opinions and you can choose from them. So I don't want to excuse any individuals and I, I try not to litigate specific cases. If you're going to rely on on norms so much to keep conversations bounded, th- think about what you do to the people who respect those bounds, because there's always going to be someone who doesn't respect those bounds willing to come along and fill their spot. So if we have I don't know, QAnon supporters in Congress, and maybe they're in Congress because, partially because people in their districts are pretty misinformed due to the way Facebook works, and for a long time really helped spread that kind of conspiracy theory. Is there other reforms in the tech space that can help us reduce the extremism that we're seeing? I, I think there, there's tons of things that can be done. I don't think you'll find a more vocal critic of Facebook than me. Uh, the solution that I advocate for is to remove the financial incentive for candidates to stretch the truth, play to the outrage, because we know that Donald Trump spent less money reaching more people on Facebook ads because his ads were more engaging than Joe Biden. And, and there is a, a very clear financial incentive from, from Facebook because they optimize for engagement. So why would I pay more to reach fewer voters by not hitting on the topics that are being already promoted and discussed in that voter's newsfeed? So the solution I advocate for is essentially you know, what we have with TV ads uh, and print ads and, and the mail and, and having a standard rate for, for candidates. So it's not as... Um, critical that you game the algorithm. Uh, I wonder how much that would help and what the likelihood is that that will happen. What's your sense? Um, well, I, I hope that the more I bang the drum on this, the the more probable a solution it'll be because I, I think it, it seems pretty straightforward to me. You know, the only way to find out if it if it will help is to to try it out. You can even do more things like you know limit um, or or even guarantee organic distribution for for political candidates. Facebook they have treated political speech on their platform more as a PR problem than a technical problem. 
you and I both know that when, when you have problems with a platform, you don't hire lawyers in a PR firm. You you hire more engineers and devs and you fix it. And and they have not really taken that step. Eric, it's been a really interesting conversation for me to talk to you about all this stuff. Is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have? No, I've really enjoyed our, our, our conversation and and. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate people being patient listening to a Republican uh, this long on on your podcast, and I'm always eager to chat with folks. Um, the best place to find me is ericjwilson.com. That's got all the information about my different projects, and always interested in um, learning what's going on on the other side of the aisle. Well, thanks again. So that was Eric Wilson. Eric is at ericjwilson.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.